0: Rightless people and detainees speak out all the time, but we are not hearing them. And I think that is the essential kind of core component of what
1: constitutes rightlessness. Welcome to kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond.
0: Behind the prison walls,
1: a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther
0: along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the
1: prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Last week, eight people attempted to escape from an immigrant detention center in Vincennes, France. They were quickly captured by police, but when the cops attempted to bring some of them to isolation cells, other prisoners rose up in solidarity with the escapees. Fires were set, damaging a third of the facility, incurring large costs. Similarly, in Caltanissetta, Italy, the police chief announced that the immigrant detention center could not be reopened until large-scale repairs were completed. Revolts inside the prison in September and October caused sufficient fire damage enough to render the buildings unsafe. A new report by the Death Penalty Information Center, or DPIC, reveals that in almost 90% of executions carried out in 2017, there is evidence that mental illness, brain damage, intellectual disability, severe trauma, or possible innocence was involved. Among the 23 executions in 2017, 20 of the people put to death had one of those impairments, and several had multiple impairments. In addition, the report found that 5 of the 23 had received extremely inadequate legal representation Or were denied substantial judicial review. DCIP Executive Director Robert Dunham observed, The death penalty appears to be carried out not on the worst of the worst, but the most vulnerable. The researchers also found that whether a person is sentenced to death or not has more to do with where the crime was committed than the crime itself. This week, we speak with Naomi Pick about her 2016 book, Rightlessness. Her work addresses the most pressing contemporary issues, drawing together the brutal state of exception imposed on Haitian and Muslim prisoners in Guantanamo with historical experience of the Japanese internment camps and the current anti-immigrant drive. She focuses on the spaces, whether prisons, concentration camps, or immigrant detention centers, necessary to isolate people and render them rightless and subhuman, and the enduring struggle of prisoners to assert their dignity and communicate with those of us on the outside.
0: My name is Naomi Paik, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And I also wrote a book called Rightlessness, Testimony, and Redress in U.S. Prison Camps Since World War II. The U.S. state has created what I call rightless people by imprisoning them in camps. And it focuses on camps from the mid-20th century to the present. Specifically, Japanese-American internment, then HIV-positive Haitian refugees who were detained at Guantanamo in the early 1990s and enemy combatants detained at Guantanamo under the war on terror. In terms of the specific histories of each of the three sites that I look at, so I look at Japanese American internment, which is a pretty well-known chapter in U.S. history, but I look at it from a slightly different angle. So I look at it from the perspective of the late 1980s through the Redress Movement. So while I'm attentive to the, the specific histories of the camps themselves in, during World War II, like Executive Order 9066, which authorized the evacuation of all Japanese persons um, from the West Coast and the creation of the camps, etc., I'm really more focused on how the U.S. state and how the U.S. society has grappled with this blatant history of explicit racism against a particular group and how that history then gets woven back in as a historic mistake that enables Japanese Americans to get formal redress from the US state in the form of $20,000 as well as a formal apology from the United States government for, you know, this for, for this gross violation of their rights. And the reason why I'm interested in redress is that I think that it marks an important moment in terms of thinking about how This is a a very particular and peculiar case of how Japanese Americans were able to actually attain redress, whereas, like, descendants of slaves and descendants of Indian massacres have not been able to. And I talk about redress in terms of broader racial politics, in terms of it being a post-civil rights kind of accomplishment, but I also question it pretty thoroughly in terms of thinking about how this redress for Japanese Americans ends up reaffirming certain kinds of racial scripts in the United States and reaffirms American exceptionalism. So it basically shores up the notion that the United States is such a great nation and only a great nation can, can face its past and admit that it did wrong and try to repair that history through this um, acknowledgement to its victims. And I think that that is a very limited perspective, because at the same moment that we're seeing redress take place in 1988, we're also seeing the massive escalation of mass incarceration, and we're also seeing the denial, the simultaneous denial of other racialized histories, like the ones that I mentioned before. So I'm trying to think about how the U.S., in grappling with this history of internment, in fact, reaffirms a kind of historical denial. Even in that act of acknowledgement. And that historical denial is part of the engine that allows us to keep on creating camps and rightless people, even as we laud ourselves as the kind of guarantor of rights, not only in the US, but also the protector of human rights globally. And so, you know, only three years after we grant redress to Japanese Americans we start sweeping away Haitian refugees into Guantanamo under indefinite detention. So this happens after the coup d'etat overthrow of Jean Bertrand Aristide, who was democratically elected. And so after the military coup, it was an incredibly violent coup. And because Aristide was so popular, the coup leaders basically targeted large swaths of the Haitian population, forcing hundreds of thousands to leave the country by small boat. And the way the U.S. responded to this refugee crisis was not to offer them sanctuary or anything like that, but to sweep them up um, in international waters and then ultimately bring them to a hastily constructed camp at its naval base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. You know, this kind of simultaneous, like, acknowledging the history of camp detention that is racially based, at the same time that we use many of the same techniques against a, a differently racialized group almost at the same time, right? So what's going on with that contradiction? And I'm trying to think about that by putting these seemingly disparate cases together historically. So out of the many thousands who passed through Guantanamo, most of them are repatriated to Haiti through very truncated processes. But there were about 300 Haitian refugees who had tested positive for HIV, but who had also already been screened in as quote-unquote bona fide refugees for resettlement in the U.S. But because they had HIV, we decided that we were not going to allow them to resettle in the U.S., and so we basically just created an almost semi-permanent camp at Guantanamo to house them, because no third country would take them. They could not go back to Haiti, and um, the U.S. would not take them either. So it's really the kind of experiment of indefinite detention, detention with no clear insight. At a peculiar space of Guantanamo, which is which the U.S. government controls complete jurisdiction and control of, but then they assert that Cuba has ultimate sovereignty over. So it's the U.S. was arguing that it's like this lawless space. And so it's the kind of experiment where we carve out what we're seeing at Guantanamo right now. And so it is the direct historical precedent for the enemy combatant camp. In that case, I examined how terrorist attacks of 9-11 enable the U.S. state to mobilize massive powers, massive executive powers for a war and for wartime detention. And so I look at all the legal machinations that allow us to claim that Guantanamo is a lawless state that we can do whatever we want to detainees there, as well as the forms of resistance that the detainees have engaged in since the camp opened, particularly hunger strikes and forced feeding. We kind of segregate different kinds of detainment from each other, right? Even if we know that they share certain kind of gr- frameworks or they're built in the same kind of fertile ground, but we have a tendency to kind of think of immigrant detention over here and mass incarceration, criminal justice prisons over here, and then like marshal prisons and camps as its own distinct thing. And what I'm trying to do is think about like how can we see these all these different kinds of detentions as being connected to each other. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is to look at the strategies the state uses in each of these different kinds of sites. These strategies are very deliberately shared in certain moments. Some of the juridical and administrative tasks, you can even think about certain of the technologies themselves, like barbed wire, you know, or guard towers, or the kind of policing guard strategies that are used. One clear example that comes to mind from the work that I did, is thinking about how Guantanamo administrators did not know how to deal with hunger strikers among so-called enemy combatants in the camp. Um, They were dealing with a really massive hunger strike. It was considered one of the largest in any U.S.-run carceral institution in 2015. And so what they did is that they consulted with the Bureau of Prisons. So they had consultants from the Bureau of Prisons fly down to Guantanamo, observe what was happening. And that's when the Bureau of Prisons recommended to Guantanamo administrators that they start uh, using the, the restraint chair in order to force feed the prisoners, which increases the pain by strapping them down. And the whole process became much more violent. And that actually did discipline that hunger strike in 2015. But I think that that's a deliberate sharing of strategies like we have this um, detained population. We don't know how to deal with their resistance strategies. We need help, and so we're going to call people from a different kind of state incarceration and ask them for help. You know, so that's a really direct line, right? More broadly, if you think about the kind of juridical or and also the social motivations or justifications behind these different kinds of incarceration, it is about vilifying demonizing, dehumanizing certain populations so that their imprisonment becomes logical, right? We have to detain enemy combatants because they they want to kill us, right? We have to detain criminals because they are dangerous to our society. We have to detain criminal aliens because they're not supposed to be here and then they commit crimes when they're here. Or actually, their mere presence in the United States is a crime, right? So it's like you have these kinds of engines of racialized dehumanization that then get codified into law, right? So, like, for a Japanese-American internment, we think about how they were considered enemy aliens, right? And that justifies their sweeping away into these desert camps. If you think about Haitian refugees, they were poor, black, from the first independent nation of liberated slaves, and the ones that I'm particularly focused on were also HIV-positive. So they have all these layers, right, of, like, loaded categories um, layered upon them, right? And then with enemy combatants, 9-11 was an incredibly deep reservoir of justifications for performing all kinds of violence around the world, which we still have today. But I think that, you know, these, these strategies are things that, these are the ways that we can connect these disparate kinds of detention and removal. It is that removal. From the rest of us, that constitutes kind of the shared ground of what I'm looking at, the shared ground of what makes our rightless person rightless. And so if you think about Japanese-American internment, they were taken away from their homes on the West Coast and put into kind of remote uh, camps in the U.S. desert West, and then also in swamplands in Arkansas. But those camps are still within U.S. territory, and I feel like that is a significant shift that I'm trying to trace which also kind of brings greater nuance to the U.S.'s strategies for justifying this kind of detainment, right? So under Japanese American internment, we have explicit racism. Um, it, it names um, persons of J- Japanese ancestry as their target. And then it also removes them, but removes them to peculiar spaces in the United States. So some of them were on uh, formal U.S. territory, but some of them were also built on native lands. Right? against the wishes of the native people, the native nations, against their desires to have these camps built on their um, territory, but there's there's still this like removal from the rest of society. They are isolated. They are surrounded by barbed wire. There's not movement from the camp to the outside of the camp, except under certain conditions, etc. One of the innovations that the U.S. comes up with, which I think is related to this kind of confrontation with its past, which wasn't actually a confrontation with its past, is that it starts citing these seemingly exceptional camps outside of U.S. state territory. And so I think the space of Guantanamo is interesting for me because it shows how layered imperial histories then become useful for the United States. What's important in terms of the legal history is that the U.S. could say that Guantanamo, because it was under complete U.S. jurisdiction and control, but under ultimate Cuban sovereignty, that it was not ruled by U.S. law and was beyond the reach of U.S. courts, but the Cuban government also had no control over it either. So it was beyond the reach of Cuban courts and Cuban law and any international agreements either state had signed. It becomes a kind of exceptionalized space in that way. But that history between this divide between the U.S. and Cuba is rooted all the way back to the 19th century, to the Spanish-American War. I feel like or that precedent of imperial history at the kind of height of explicit U.S. empire then gets distilled, even in the 21st century, to make this special, peculiar space that's not within the U.S., but is definitely of the U.S., that beca- then becomes a useful site for sweeping people away from the reach of any kind of social or political community that can guarantee the detainees' rights. The reason why the U.S. chose Guantanamo as the quote-unquote resource place as the site for indefinite detention is precisely because of this layered imperial history that ostensibly makes Guantanamo beyond the reach of law. I kind of rub up against the assertion that Guantanamo is a lawless space because if you look at it carefully, you actually see that Guantanamo is highly regulated in terms of legal regulations. So for example, you know, if a soldier commits a crime against a US citizen, then he he or she will be held accountable for it through military law or the rights of certain endangered species. That can be found on guantanamo their lives are protected so you know if there's a certain kind of iguana this endangered species of iguana is crossing the road then the military vehicle has to stop and wait for the iguana to pass through before it can continue and yet the lives of the detainees who are held there are not ostensibly covered by any law so we can do whatever we want there obviously presents a lot of challenges for detainees to legally assert their rights and to resist their indefinite detention beyond due process. And this is one of the core questions at the center of the Haitian case and um, also the enemy combatants. Despite the U.S.'s assertions that it can do whatever it wants at this space, that's not, in fact, entirely true. So, like, the very archives that I'm looking at to examine rightlessness in camps is rooted in legal archives that were produced by the detainees suing the U.S. government for their freedom or suing the U.S. government for some of their rights, at least some kind of recognition. There are legal strategies that detainees at Guantanamo have used, right? And they have been recognized by the courts. So it is through the courts that the 300 HIV-positive Haitian refugees were able to find their release. Also, it is through the courts that habeas corpus was recognized as a right that detainees have at Guantanamo under the War on Terror. So we have like three key Supreme Court cases, Russell v. Bush, Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, and Boumediene v. Bush, right? And so these acts are really important in that, this, in that they say that, you know, these detainees should have habeas corpus, right? But at the same time, that recognition of their due process and their status as legal subjects is always attenuated because still the U.S. asserts complete control over the the conditions of their detention, what that recognition looks like, et cetera, et cetera. So the U.S. is constantly adapting to the different challenges that these detainees present them. Right. So it'll find like uh, a ways around actually giving them full procedural rights. So, for example, um, in the latest Guantanamo case, after the Russell v. Bush decision, which said that detainees should have habeas corpus, they need to know why they're being detained specifically, not as a blanket form of you're a terrorist, therefore you have to be here, but specifically, what are you being charged with? We came up with um, kangaroo courts that took about, that, that were very, very swift. It's like, basically, the U.S. would claim you're being charged with conspiracy to commit terrorism and aiding and abetting terrorism against the United States or something like that. The hearings would be very, very swift, like a couple of minutes each. And then, you know, then we would say, okay, we've told them their charges. Um, we affirm that they are properly detained here, that we have reason for it. And so that constitutes habeas corpus. But that's not actual real due process, right? Because it's not an actual procedure in which they had their full rights recognized to them, right? So they had, instead of having a lawyer, they had a military official. Instead of having, you know, protected rights of counsel, their counsel could actually use anything that they said against them in that kangaroo court. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's like we can say that, okay, now we've given them habeas without actually giving them habeas the U.S. is very nuanced, it is very adaptable, it is very flexible in maintaining its power to um, detain people in different situations. So I think what is equally important to the juridical challenges um, against their indefinite detention are the -the on-the-ground kind of challenges to their detention. So... um, In all of these different kinds of sites, and also not just these camps, but in um, sites of detention more broadly, you will see really creative ways of resisting of the state. Uh, You can have things as radical as, like, hunger strikes um, and organized mobilizations. The Haitian refugees, for example, had their own marches and demonstrations where they would just dress in white and march around the field, right, just to say, show to their camp administrators that we do not belong here. We need to be let go. It was a totally peaceful demonstration that was met with incredible violence by the guards, like with dogs and billy clubs and military equipment. In the war on terror camps, we see prolonged hunger strikes by certain detainees that they refuse to eat until they are released, really. I mean, that's their ultimate demand. Right. Some of these acts of resistance can be individualized, but I think that a lot of times we see the most powerful demonstrations of their resistance are collective and organized, where or the detainees find ways to communicate with each other and defend each other in particular instances of unfair treatment or of brutality. Ultimately, in all of these acts of resistance, what the detainees are asking for Is not even just a recognition of their habeas rights, but it is for belief, right? It is to be freed from confinement and to be reintegrated into their social and political community. I'm defining rightlessness in multiple means. So one is the removal from the rest of us, which means that the rest of us often don't know what's even happening to them. So we can't like stand up for those people's rights either. And those people can't call on us to force the state to stop doing what it's doing to them. But the, one of the other central facets of rightlessness for me is the inability to be heard, not mattering and not being worth listening to. So even though rightless people speak all the time, they're trying to communicate with us all the time through multiple means not just by speaking out literally or writing letters or um, writing other kinds of documents, poetry, memoirs, things like this, but the, and um, creating art, right? They speak, and even these protests, we can see as a form of communication to us, right? Like even hunger strikes, I think, are a form of communication. Rightless people and detainees speak out all the time, but we are not hearing them. And I think that is the essential kind of core component of what constitutes rightlessness. But despite the fact that they speak out all the time, even though there's no guarantee that anyone is listening, they continue to testify to their experience. And I think that's a really important mode of resistance for them. But it's also a mode of kind of articulating and coming to understand what does it mean to be a person swept away from the rest of their social and political communities, right? So they're actually interpreting for us what it means to not have one's rights recognized, what it means to be um, isolated from any kind of community that can stand up for them. And I think that's one of the central questions that I'm interested in. So what, what are they saying about that experience? So if you think of agency and structure as being related to each other, Even under such restrictive structures, they're still able to carve out ways to mobilize amongst each other to communicate to those of us on the outside who actually want to do something about their detention. And it's also through the testimony that they're calling out the state for its own hypocrisies, for its own failures, despite the U.S.'s reputation as a great nation that stands up for the human rights of everyone around the world. And it's pointing out that that is, in fact, not the case for certain kinds of people, including them. So they're also giving us like a critical lens and an analysis to understand state power and how it can move through multiple modalities. A lot of the times, the only place you're going to find the archives of rightless people speaking or communicating is in the archives of the state themselves which are not entirely trustworthy archives, especially when you're talking about demonized populations. In the current Guantanamo camps, we've come up with different sorts of kangaroo courts. Well, the transcripts of those kangaroo courts are completely unreliable, and yet that's what I have to work with. So I had to kind of, I read through many pages of documents of these kangaroo courts, and in many of those records, the DTDs don't speak at all. So I'm interested when they actually speak through um, these kangaroo courts. What is it that they're saying, other than saying that I am innocent and I shouldn't be detained here? And so I'm looking through those for those moments where they kind of break the frame of that juridical structure, because the structure of a trial or a deposition is this question and answer kind of structure. They're not allowed to really tell their stories as if they were just, you know, talking to one of us, as if they were just. Providing their own witnessing to what what they were going through, so I'm trying to think about how do they testify to their experience without those um, constraints by the state, and then what do they say, and then how can we read these different kinds of modalities of communicating of trying to communicate with us, like the rest of us on the outside, you know, um, like. Uh, how, how do we read the archives of the state against these archives, non-state archives, basically? And how can we, um, how does that, uh, what they say beyond the state, like through cultural production, how can that influence the way we read what they're allowed to say um, in these more juridical settings? How are these detainees nevertheless communicating to us beyond the questions that they're being asked specifically? But it's also about looking beyond the archives of the state, looking at certain kinds of cultural production, you know, like detainee poetry or different kinds of communicative acts like those protests that the Haitian refugees did or the peaceful marches that the Haitian refugees did. Rights are relational. They're not just about this thing that we are all endowed with just by the fact of being born as humans for many people, their humanity is not secure. Not everyone is recognized as being equally human as everyone else. It is a fallacy to believe that all of us have rights because we are all of the same human species. And if you think about it historically, that has basically never been the case, even when we formalized this thing called human rights in the wake of World War II. In fact, rights are about our relationships to each other, And one of the quandaries that I'm kind of thinking about is how my rights as a rightful person who's, you know, incredibly privileged and a U.S. citizen and all this kind of stuff, how my rights are secured through the deprivation or the rightlessness of other kinds of people. So my safety and my rights are secured by keeping terrorist enemies, quote unquote, under massive detention and other forms of state violence or that the rights of U.S. citizens under World War II were kept safer and were secured through the mass imprisonment of Japanese Americans and Japanese residents. Or that the health and safety of the nation was secured by keeping a mere 300 HIV-positive refugees out of the U.S. If we actually are invested in seeing different kinds of incarcerated populations actually having rights, then it is on us to recognize how our rightfulness is deeply embedded in their rightlessness. We actually have not just like some kind of amorphous moral responsibility to see ourselves as connected to them, but we have a political responsibility, not just for them, but also for ourselves, to see ourselves in relation to
1: them. This has been Kite Line. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities.